Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm hoping my voice hangs in there with me today. I've got allergies, but I think we'll be okay. I know we have an absolutely fantastic show for you. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks International Collaborative Resource Directory for Dementia. And if you haven't checked it out, I would highly encourage you to do so. There's lots of ways to Participate and find information you're looking for at www.alzheimersspeaks.com. Here on the radio show, we believe on giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their care partners, empowering everyone to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people how to live with the disease not as the disease. Our channel expert who has early onset is Rick Phelps, and I'm not sure if Rick's going to be able to make the show today or not. If he pops in, I will definitely pull him into the conversation. For those of you who are not familiar with Rick, Rick was um, diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010, and he is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates. So I'd encourage you to just put memory people in the search bar on Facebook and go ahead and check it out. Here on the radio show, we are extremely collaborative, and we're all about shifting caregiving from crisis to comfort. And today I'm so honored to have um, our guests with us because they are really going to help us push things forward. So if you want to join the conversation um, you can do that in a couple of fashions. You can use your chat box. Um, just type in and push the button, and I will grab that comment. So I'll be monitoring those. Or you can call in live. Um, just dial 714-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. Um, um, five seven and push one. And again, when there's a break in the conversation, we'll we'll pull you in um, to talk with us so we can hear your question or comment that you have. Our first guest today is Vicki Kind, and Vicki is a clinical bioethics, um, and she's a medical educator and a hospice volunteer. She has an award-winning book called The Caregiver's Path to Compassionate Decision Making making choices for those who cannot that helps guide families and professionals 
through the difficult process of making decisions for those who have lost their capacity to do so. Um, she lectures across the United States, teaching healthcare professions, uh, professionals um, how to have integrity and compassion and to improve end-of-life care through better communication. Both um, patients, family, and healthcare professionals re- rely on Vicki's practical approach to dealing with all of the challenging healthcare dilemmas that we run across. Vicki provides bioethics consultation and support for many hospitals in the Los Angeles area. She holds her master's degree in bioethics um, from the Medical College of Wisconsin and a bachelor's degree in speech communication from California State University, um, Northridge. And she has specialized in training in um, mediation and culture negotiation from Pepperdine University and UCLA. Vicki is an honorary board member of the Well Spouse Association, and she has been a caregiver for many years for four members of her own family. So I'm so excited to have you with us today. How are you doing, Vicki? I'm wonderful. I'm glad to be here with you. Thanks, Lori. Well, you know, Vicki and I have known each other for a couple of years just via the Internet, and you know, she is just an amazing woman um, that has such great information to pass on to all of you. So I can't wait to get started. But I always like to start, Vicki, with one question and just ask, have you been personally touched at all um, by dementia? And if so, how? Um, my dad had vascular dementia, and he lived for a number of years with it. Um, He fluctuated. Sometimes it was very bad. Sometimes he had better days. Um, But I was his primary caregiver and had to make all of his life and health and and financial decisions for him because um, even though he was still charming and delightful, he couldn't really think clearly. And so um, it, it, it was a pleasure to take care of him because, you know, I loved him very much. Well, that's nice. Well, can you tell us, I know you have four tools that really can help people um, make um, decisions and do it in a compassionate um, way. Can you share with our audience um, kind of an overview of those four tools? Sure. Um, The first tool is called the decision-making framework, and this tool will help us to make sure that we're respecting the person's wishes when we know them And when we don't know what the person would want, it helps us to make the best decisions we can. The second tool is called the shared decision-making model. This tool helps us to make sure that the person is included in the decision-making process based on their mental age or their mental ability. Basically, the more capacity, mental capacity the person has, the more they can have a voice in the decision. So this way we're not eliminating that person from their own life. We can still include them in certain decisions. The sister tool that goes with the shared decision-making model is called the sliding scale for decision-making. This takes that concept of letting the person be involved based on their mental ability, and then it helps us to make sure that it's a safe decision for the person to participate in. Um, There are some decisions people shouldn't have a voice in when they have dementia, Alzheimer's, some other mental incapacity. Um, So maybe it's a decision about where to go for dinner. That's a pretty safe decision. They should be able to decide. But whether or not they should be driving, 
that's going to be a more serious one. So the sliding scale says that the more serious the situation, the more capacity the person has to have. And the last tool is a way for us to include the person when we think it's safe to do so. It's called the ascent tool, which means we're going to ask them their opinion and we're going to honor what they've said because we only ask when we think we can follow what they say. We don't ask questions that um, we won't be happy with the answer. Um, what's hap- what makes these tools of compassionate process is that it's designed to honor and respect the person when we're in charge and to help keep that individual empowered and protected um, as much as we can. Okay. And, and all of these tools are in your book, correct? Right. Right. They're, they come from bioethics. Um, my work as a bioethicist uh, has all sorts of wonderful tools and resources to help people make these kinds of decisions. Um, do you want me to tell you what bioethics is? Because some people don't know what I do. That would be that would be wonderful. Okay. Um, so basically, a bioethicist is the person that helps resolve healthcare conflicts and helps both the family and the patients and the doctors navigate these complicated decisions. Um, so in bioethics, um, we try to always start from honoring and respecting a person and listening to their wishes, um, and then we try to implement that even when the doctors and the family are in charge, that they're supposed to be honoring the patient's wishes. So sometimes I get called in because the patient has an advanced health care directive or living will, and nobody's following it. The doctors are ignoring it. The family don't want to do what it says. But that's not right. We're supposed to do right by the patient. Um, Another situation I see is that a person may not have anyone to speak for them. They may have outlived all their family, or they don't have a lot of friends, nobody who can come in and say, I know her, let me help. And so sometimes I get called in for that situation. And probably the most common thing I get called in for is when the family or the doctors are at war with each other. And everyone in the family has a different opinion. Even the healthcare team, the different doctors may have opinions. And so I have to mediate and facilitate that conversation and help people find a common mission. And that common mission is what we call patient or person-centered care, where we think about it for the person's best interest. So that's what I do, and that's where these tools come from. Um, One of the things I discovered is that I started to use these tools when I took care of my dad. And I was just doing it naturally because it's just part of what I do on a regular basis in my work. And I found that they worked fabulously. And so that's why I knew if this can work for my dad as his mental condition changes, it could work for other people's family members. Wonderful. Because I think a lot of times when people think of bioethics, they always think of end of life and the feud of do they live or do they die. But there's yeah, so many variables in between, I would imagine, <laughs> that right. you run across. I mean, probably 85, 90% of my work is in end-of-life decision-making, but there are a lot of medical decisions along the way. And uh, these same principles of dignity and respect and compassion, those work when we're making everyday kind of decisions, whether it's do we move mom to a nursing home, do we bring a caregiver into the home, 
you know, what what do we do for someone who can't speak? Um, the other thing for people to realize is that in every hospital in the United States, there is a bioethics or an ethics committee, and it's a free resource. So if you're ever in a situation where your gut is saying, this isn't right, I don't know why the people aren't listening, What? this is wrong, you can just call the hospital operator and ask to speak to someone from the ethics committee, and they'll connect you to that person, and they're supposed to help you. And I just like people to know that because it's a resource that, if you don't know exists, that you can't get the help. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't know to ask. Um, and they're not comfortable, um, you know, asking. And, and so that's good that you that you mentioned that because there are a lot more resources out there than than most people know about. And so that's very important. Yeah, know. and even if you're not the problem, I mean, it's sometimes we're our own problem in our situation. But sometimes it's a, the team, the healthcare team, is the problem. The bio, you may not even see what the bioethics committee is doing for you behind the scenes. But they may pull aside that doctor who's being disrespectful and say, hey, you need to straighten up. You're breaking the law. You need to do this. You know, they, you know, in general, we don't actually make people do things. We educate. We help them understand, well, they, these are the laws. These are the ethical practices. Here's what our policies say. And we try to help people kind of see the light that they should do what, um, you know, the, the rules are. So... We help people in a lot of a lot of different ways. Okay, wonderful. Now you talk about making decisions for your dad, and and you describe, um, you know, in the book how his mental age kept changing, and so you had to adjust kind of the rules for making decisions. And you touched on that, and you know, when you um, talked about um, the four tools, can you give us a little more specifics and maybe some examples of that? Oh, absolutely. So when my dad first had um, first started demonstrating his dementia, me like every other caregiver, you know, we didn't. I didn't always see the signs right away. Um, then he started falling, and I realized something's wrong, and so I started to put a plan in place. And at that time, my dad's mental age was probably like a five-year-old. And what I started doing was using this ethics tool that I mentioned, where I I include people based on their mental age. This tool actually comes from pediatric ethics, um, where we, in the children's hospitals, we allow people who are age 14 to 17 to have a lot of control and power in their life. So if you think of someone with dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, they're in the early stages. They still can communicate. They're still doing all right. They have some gaps, but they're still here. You know, it's, it, we don't have to take over everything because they're still here and can participate to quite a big degree. The next category is people 7 to 13. For those individuals, they can have some control and some choice and voice in their life, but not in the most dangerous situations because they're mentally like someone middle, you know, middle age, 7 to 13. Um, and then zero to six, that person really shouldn't have much control over things because their mind is too vulnerable. Um, now, one of the problems is is some people will let their, if you think about your, your own kids, some people will let their own children 
have too much power at age five. You know, I know five-year-olds that run the house for some people, and that's that's not appropriate because the child at five does not have abstract thinking. They can't think out into the future. They can't consider consequences. Um, so zero to six mentally, not much power or control. Now, I do want to clarify that I'm never saying that an adult is a child. I personally do not like when we say we're parenting our parents um, because they're grown people. They have lived lives. They they have their own identity. And for us to, I, I just I just have a problem with that. But I really find that this kind of thinking about them, where they are mentally, really helps caregivers and families because they start to realize, oh. If someone is a certain mental age, they're only able to do so much. For example, um, there was a gentleman the other day. He said to me after I taught him this, he said, my grandfather is mentally eight, like an eight-year-old. And eight-year-olds don't drive. Vicki, I should take away his car keys. And it, it was just wonderful because his gut had been telling him, I should take away the keys. I don't think he's safe. But he hadn't been able to take action because he didn't have it know why he should be taking away the keys. But once he understood that eight-year-olds don't drive and his grandfather was like an eight-year-old, it made perfect sense. Well, that's um, a great example. Yeah. Another example that I recently heard, um, I had taught this tool to a geriatric care manager and she had been using it with a family she was helping. And this was a gentleman who was in his 60s, but he had a mental age of about 11 um, because he had always been developmentally disabled. He had one of those disabilities from birth that he only aged to about 11 mentally. Physically, of course, he's a 60-year-old man. Um, and he lived with his two sisters. And, and there was such conflict in this house. They just did not get along the three of them. And she taught this tool to his sisters. And they looked at each other and they said, he's 11. We have been mad at him all of these years because we thought he was 16. We've been treating him like he should be 16 or 17. And, of course, then he fails. He, mm-hmm. he can't do what's, what uh, somebody who's 16 can do. He's only 11. And she said that they had all this peace and harmony because now they didn't judge him so harshly. Now when he made a mistake or couldn't follow through with something, they would smile at each other and think, he's 11. And it was amazing because we stop, we start accepting the person where they are. And and that's a lot of peace for that caregiver. And we also can adjust our our action based on where they are. My dad was sometimes five and sometimes 12. And so on the days when he was mentally five, I had to protect him more. I had to make most of the decisions. I really had to be in charge because he was that vulnerable. But when he started doing better and having better days, um, I had to move him to a different place. So I think that's why he was doing better. I think he was getting better care there. When he's mentally 12, I don't treat him like a five-year-old. 
I treat him like a 12-year-old, and he had a lot more power and control, which made him feel great. So it's it's been very exciting to watch how families start saying he can do what he can, but I don't need to be um, expecting more from him and then be disappointed or putting him in situations where he's going to fail. It's a, it's a pretty cool tool. Okay. So for um, families, is it something where you have to actually get them tested or can people kind of come to that determination themselves in terms of just putting it yes. in a different light? How do you come up with this this age that kind of centers people? Yeah, thank you for asking because it's, uh, it's funny. Most When I teach this to healthcare professionals, they feel very worried because they don't know your person the same way you do. And it's very hard for them um, to come up with, uh, they either call it developmental age or mental age. They feel very um, uncomfortable trying to figure this out. Most family caregivers, they know exactly. They know exactly where their loved one is. They'll say to me, mine's eight, mine's 15. They know. But let me give you a couple questions you can be asking um, for those who are saying, well, I'm not sure. So the first question I always ask is, can your person stay home alone? Because if they can stay home alone, they're at least the mental age of 12. Because that's about the age we let children stay home alone. So if you feel safe leaving your person home alone, they're 12 or older. If you're saying to yourself, no way, he can't stay home alone, that means he's 11 or younger. And then think of some other examples. Um, can this person make a sandwich? Now, there are different kinds of making a sandwich. There's putting bread and cheese together and just folding the sandwich together. There's going into the kitchen and finding all the things you need, the bread, the cheese, the mayonnaise, whatever you're going to put on this sandwich, getting the knife, using the knife. Some people will say to me, Vicki, I would never give my person a knife. It's like, okay, so he's probably three or four because you don't hand a knife to someone who's, you know, mentally younger. And Mm -hmm. so think about things you would allow a child to do and then compare those same behaviors to what an adult who has some disability would be able to do. Um, So like someone who's eight, they can certainly pick like do, what activity they want to do. Do you want to have music on? Do you want to watch TV? Of course an 8-year-old can choose that, but you wouldn't let an 8-year-old, you know, buy a car or sign a lease. They're just not able. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually after I give people a few of these examples, they at least have a range. They have a, a, an idea where the person is, and usually they know exactly. It's, it's been pretty remarkable. Yeah, I can I can see that because you you give such nice examples in terms of pinpointing that and rationalizing that, and it just it frames it in a different way that just makes it easier to accept because it is difficult for families, um, especially to to step in and kind of take over somebody's life. Um, it's a it's a difficult thing to do, and you know t- usually I think many of us use danger and safety as a way to measure okay when 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 we hit the wall and now we have to make a decision. We can't ignore it anymore. Um or it's or it's looming so close um that we're we're forced to make that decision. Can you explain 
you know, is there ways to make that easier for us? And, and again, I think this tool is definitely helpful in terms of, of framing that. But are, are there some other things that can help us frame things different and know when to step in before something bad happens? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's always denial, and we could talk about that separately, where we don't want to see it. Like, mm -hmm. um, I know someone who's a fellow colleague of ours. She let her mom light the house on fire twice. Oh. <laughs> now, lighting it on fire once is bad enough, but to allow it twice, it means, but she even admits, she says, I couldn't see it. I rationalized. I, you know, so if you're in denial, you cannot see what you can't see. But a lot of times we're starting to have suspicions. We're saying something's not right. I, I think, I don't think she should be driving. You know, I, I think she shouldn't be living at home. So what I first tell people is when you, when you start having those suspicions, take action. You know, start to pay attention. Go and get more information because you kind of know it's coming if you live close enough and see the person. Much harder if you live far away. But what I do is I, again, try to measure with my um, other tool, the one that goes with that idea of mental age. Um, it's called the sliding scale for decision-making. And the reason I call it sliding is that situations, they kind of the danger scale slides back and forth. So like you, most people with any kind of dementia should not be driving, you know, especially as it's progressing. So that's way on the danger scale. Or um, living at home alone can be really dangerous. But there are times when living at home isn't so dangerous because the person isn't getting into a lot of trouble. You know, you have those individuals who do a lot of wandering, who turn the stove on. If you have someone like that, it's more dangerous. So the scale slides to the danger side. But if you have somebody that just sits in a chair, just watches TV, doesn't do anything that is dangerous, well, they still need help and protection. But, again, you have to really look at the specifics of the situation. Um, for some people, they just wander in the house. And as long as you've picked up the rugs and made sure they're not going to trip, that's not as dangerous as someone who's trying to escape out of the house, right? So you look mm -hmm. at the different situations, um, and you try to protect them on the most dangerous things. That's when caregivers must absolutely step in, driving, uh, living in a dangerous situation, um, all of the things where the person can't protect themselves. Um, a question I'll ask families, they'll say, but I, th I think she's still okay enough. Well, if there was a fire, would she know to call 911 and would she get herself out of the house? And usually they look at me and they say, oh, no, no, she couldn't do any of those. Then she can't live home alone. She cannot protect herself. I know she's managing, but she can't protect herself when the danger shows up. Um, now, there are a lot of times when families are overprotective, too, where they're trying to um, control every little detail. I have family friends like this. The, the husband has Alzheimer's. The wife tries to control his every little movement. She'll be like, no, don't sit there. Sit here. You know, I mean, it's like she... 
why are you controlling everything? He can sit where he wants. It's no big deal. You know, he can wear what he wants. It's not going to be dangerous. So I think that knowing how dangerous it is, and people actually know. I, I actually give people a lot of credit. You know, if it's not dangerous, don't micromanage it. Don't over-control it because now you're going to create a lot of frustration for that for that person you're caring for. They don't like to have everything controlled. Step in on the big stuff. Let a lot of the little stuff go. Um, yeah. Like showering is another one. People get so upset. She's not showering. Well, it's not really as dangerous as you make it out to be. Unless they have some terrible skin condition, you know, they're stinky. It's kind of yucky, but don't. that one isn't as dangerous as something else you might be ignoring. So yeah. I kind of put it on a scale. Yeah, that's very true. It kind of ties in with the, the memory chip that I um, tell people to use in terms of framing things to be able to let things go. And I have three things that I have them focus on. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? You know, if you're really truly focused on, on person-centered care, it is about them and not about how you're feeling. And I think as families and friends and, and even as business professionals, um, a lot of times we we think we're focusing on them, but if we look really hard, um, what we're doing is because of how we feel. It's about right. our reaction to what's before us. And um, And those are two different things. <laughs> they're yeah. way two different things, yeah. um, but we don't see it because it's just what we do, and right. how we've always how we've always done things. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I think also I know when I I sold real estate for 25 years <clears throat> and helped families with transitions, and what I found when you were talking about the whole denial, there was kind of two sides. There was the side that really wanted to over control. And then there was the side that kind of had that that loneliness, knowing something wasn't right. But but then they would say, but if I bring it up, I have to do something, and I don't have time to deal with this. And yeah. so it was easier to ignore because they just couldn't figure out how they were going to put how how are they going to merge that on their plate. Right. Um, and some of that is emotional processing, and some of it's physical task and just time, too, I think, that, that people really struggle with when caring. Absolutely. Um, there, there are two kinds of denial. There's called de- regular denial, and then there's something called disbelief, which is kind of what you were describing, where they know but they don't want to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. In denial, when someone really can't see what's true, like you get bad news and you just you can't believe it. Your brain just kind of blocks it and shuts down for a while. You know, that just takes time for your body to accept what's really happening. But um, disbelief is kind of a really cool tool that I actually use to help people um, get past their blocks. Let me explain. Disbelief says, I know it, but I don't want to know it. But I know it, but I don't want to know it. So you actually... (laughs) believe two things at once. It's rather remarkable. And so what I'll say to people is that I know you don't want to focus on this. I know it's painful. But what I need from you when I'm working with them as a professional, what I need from you is for the next 20 minutes, I need you to step out of your denial, and and we're going to have to build a plan. We've got to figure out how to keep her safe 
able to make these medical decisions. And then after we're done talking about this, then I want you to step back and not think about it anymore today. Because to be worried about it all day long is exhausting. There's so much grief and shock and all of that stuff. But if you can help people say, I need, we have to take action because the person isn't safe or they're really sick and we need to make a plan, a lot of times you give the person that freedom to step in and out of it in a very practical way, they'll say, oh, okay, all right, so I'll, I don't have to deal with this all day, just for a few minutes. Yes, okay, I can do that. It, it's been kind of fun to watch. Oh, yeah, I can see where that would be really effective because it is it is overwhelming and it's just daunting and, you know, we take it on <clears throat> our shoulders as such a big as such a big project. And and not that there's not a lot of responsibility, but you know you, you can't really let any one thing run your life like that, or it'll run you to the ground. Right, and and, and, and uh, as I'm sure you talk about on a lot of your shows, you got to build a caregiving team. You can, mm-hmm. nobody can do this all by themselves. You will fall apart, and you've got to ask for help, find the resources, go get some information, ask everyone you know. You know what I tell people is. When you're talking to someone who's an expert, whether it's a doctor or social worker, say, what else should I be asking? What else should I know that I'm not even thinking I need to find out? You know, and who else should I be talking to? Um, it really can help because that person's already had experience. You know, we've never done this before. This is our first time around where someone else would say, you know what, here's where you begin. And people will help you. Yeah, it's amazing, but we don't, um, as a society, we don't teach um, ourselves to tap into services. Um, You know, we're we're kind of a a nation of independence, and we pride ourselves on being able to do it alone. And it's bad because there, there is so much support out there, and... You know, we do a better job together. Um, like I told my, my parents, I was kind of the, the main caregiver. And what I realized after my dad died, which was too late, um, but that nobody wants to be, you know, tied to me 24-7, no matter how wonderful I think I am. <laughs> you know? and, and, and how good of care I think I'm giving. I mean, how boring is that? You know, right. everybody I... likes the spice of life and the, the different interaction and to feel purposeful and connected and when we dominate a situation like that we we really reduce in my in my estimation their ability to have a fulfilled life absolutely as well I've, as I've, I've i've made similar mistakes and i've realized you know they need a break from us just like we need a break from them yeah and i'm like well can you please stop talking <laughs> you know i mean yeah. they're just as real as we are and I know that I thought I could do it better, I could do it best, and I didn't ask for help, and I fell apart. So yep. it's it's I've learned that lesson now. I ask for help. You know, I say I can't do all this. I am not the expert. Let me let me find out who is. Mm-hmm. That's actually doing something well instead of thinking that's a bad thing. That's actually being smart about it. Yeah. The other the other lesson I learned was um, to let go of control of things that I can't control, and and to me I think that's one of the biggest burden traps that caregivers fall into is they think they can control everything, 
and it's yeah. impossible. You you have to learn to manage, and you have to learn to be flexible and spontaneous, and to have backup plans, and to know that um, the other thing that I learned was that perfect really doesn't exist. And if you're lucky enough, it happens once, but you can never recreate it because everything else changes. And yeah. so I I don't strive for perfection anymore. I just strive to do the best I can every day with what I have, knowing tomorrow I can do better. And that that has just relieved such a burden on on my shoulders in every aspect of my life because I apply it to everything now. But that is something the whole caregiving process taught me, and it was a you know, and it was a a painful process because I I was trying so hard to be perfect and do it all myself. Um, but boy, did I learn the lesson well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and hopefully you didn't learn it painfully. <laughs> so yeah. it well, it was easier it to learn. It wasn't from... easy, that's for sure. You know, because it was uh, it was one of those where it was just crushing, and you get, you know, as a caregiver, you can get so isolated sometimes that you can't see outside because you're mm-hmm. so overwhelmed. You know, with with what's going on, you've you've shut yourself in. Um, and kind of locked the door, locked yourself in a cage. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you can still have a life and you can still um, care for someone else and find balance, but you can't control it all. You know, you can't do it and and feel like you have to control it all. Yeah, the same mistake happens in healthcare because people think medicine actually always works. Like medicine is magic that... Nobody ever has the bad side effects. You know, people will say, well, you know, you might have this problem or this problem after surgery. Well, that won't happen to me, you know. And I think we have to all be more realistic that, you know, life is a little messy and we we don't know if we're going to be the lucky one that does well after surgery or if we're going to have a side effect from that medicine. You know, there's so much hope and desire, but, you know, I I believe in hope but I don't believe in false hope. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes there's a lot of false hope where people, um, again, I think it's kind of denial where we don't want to see it, but it's true. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Now, one of your tools, too, is called uh, the substitute judgment. Can you tell us how this can help families make better medical decisions with those with Alzheimer's? Oh, absolutely. Um, This is probably the tool that gives people the most peace of mind because what happens is you're sitting in the hospital with your loved one and the doctor walks in and what the doctor usually says, and this is incorrect, they say to you, what do you want to do for your husband who's there in the bed? What do you want? And that puts all the pressure on you. Or what do do you want to pull the plug? Do you want to decide? like are you kidding i don't want to make these decisions this is too much pressure what the doctor is supposed to say is what would your husband say what would your husband be saying if he could understand what's happened the changes that have happened to his body and the choices in front of him what would your husband be telling us to do that's substituted judgment that you're just the substitute voice You're like filling in and speaking for him with his voice. You're not substituting your values. You're not saying, I know what's best for him. You're saying, what would he say? 
And I will tell you, this helps people get out of some of their emotional worries and feeling that pressure like, oh, my gosh, what if I make the wrong decision? It's really not our decision to make. What we're supposed to do, again, is think about it from the person's perspective. And so if a doctor comes in and says, what do you want to do? You know, I would encourage you to say, doctor, you're supposed to use substituted judgment because we're supposed to be honoring my husband's wishes. And just hold them accountable because, you know, they're making it harder on us. Um, The other part of this is that not only do we think about what they've said in the past and what wishes they might have said and what their values or religion or culture says, but we also want to think about it from their experiential process. One of the sentences that I say all the time to families is, what will it be like? and feel like for your husband to experience the choice you're about to make. Because if you decide that he needs surgery, your body's not going to go through surgery, your body's not going to go through recovery and pain and all of that, your husband's body is. So we've really got to like almost like step into their body and their experience and think about what we're doing to them. This is not something that's a casual decision. We have to think about it from the person who's going to experience this this process. Um, One of my core beliefs is that when we're making decisions for another human being, we have to take this very seriously. We have to ask a lot of really good questions, and we also have to think about it from our heart and think about the compassion Like, should we put this person through this procedure? Um, The other day I got a call from an Alzheimer's association, and they said, Vicki, we need your help. Um, A daughter came in, and she's really worried because they took the mom who has, you know, kind of mid-stage Alzheimer's. They took her for a mammogram. And, of course, what they find? Breast cancer. And now she's scheduled for a mastectomy. And the daughter was saying, I don't think this is right, but again, I don't know why it's not right. And when we don't know why something's not right, it's harder to say no and to take action. And the Alzheimer's Association said, we know it's not right, but can you help us know how to explain this? Um, And so I said to them, you know, can this person actually go through this surgery? Because that's where we start. Can this person experience this? And, you know, from, from what I know about breast cancer, it's a really tough surgery. Afterwards, you have all these t- drainage tubes and things that you have, to, um, you, have to, you have to not pull on them. Well, someone with a lot of Alzheimer's may want to pull on those tubes. Um, their pain, there may be a lot of pain. They have to follow instructions, not lift their arms certain ways. And... There's a lot of recovery, a lot of difficult recovery in front of this person. And then there would be chemotherapy. And, you know, how do you explain to someone that we're we're making you sick to help you feel better when they can't even process just the basics, like what's their mm-hmm. name? So this so there's always a, we always have to look at all the options though. Because it's so easy to say, well, of course we're not going to give, put someone through a cancer surgery when they have Alzheimer's. But you always have to look at, if I don't do this, 
then what? Okay, yep. so then I said, but you're going to have to understand that now you have a woman who can't communicate very well. She can't always express her pain. Maybe you'll be able to see it on her because non-verbally she'll express it. But we, we've we got to now make sure that we care for this person carefully and make sure she has good palliative care and pain management. We don't want any suffering. You know, so whatever we decide, we've got to let it play out. We have to think to ourselves, what will happen out into the future with this decision? Not only what's the, what's the choice like in the immediate, immediate moment, but what will it feel like and be like out into the future? And I find that when we really think about it from the person's perspective, the patient who's going to experience it, people make great decisions. But instead, what most people hear is, you know, do you want the magic surgery that will make it all better? Well, sure, sign me up. But nobody mm-hmm. talks about the suffering. And I think yep. when we're caring for others, we have to worry about that. Oh, I agree. I've I've stated this a few times on the on the radio where my my mom's teeth were rotting, and so the dentist, you know, wanted to like go in, yank them all, make dentures, and I said no, and they're like, well, no, it, you know, I, this needs to be done, and, you know, she's going to get an infection, and blah 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 blah, and I said, you know what, she's been battling this disease for thirty years. She has a super fear of the dentist, always has, because a, a young friend of hers, when she was just a child, died in the dentist chair. So she would go, but she just hated going. I said, and she still can tell texture in her mouth. I could tell that by what she would eat and how she would react. And I said, so, you know, the surgery alone could kill her if she knew that you were pulling her teeth. I mean, that alone could just panic her enough to, to just horrify her. I said, then she's going to have all this pain. You're going to have to stuff her mouth. You know, she doesn't She doesn't even like her teeth brushed, and now you're going to go in and do all this major work. Then you think you're going to go in and put a mold in her mouth, and she's going to sit for that. We'd have mm-hmm. to knock her out. And they're going to end up in a damn drawer, yeah. <laughs> you know, because she's not going to know that they're hers or how to use them. I said, and I mean, it was an hour and a half conversation, and the dentist was just totally peeved at me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not authorizing this. Right. I don't think it's what she would want. There you go. You know? That's the question. And, and yeah. the way you you just role modeled perfect substituted judgment and patient centered thinking. You know, your mom particularly had an issue with dentists. You know, mm-hmm. some people, they have no problem. But your mom, and that's what it is, is, you know, I encourage caregivers to really be great advocates because you know your mom best. You know your person best. And nobody knows that they've been traumatized in the dentist chair before or that they don't do well in this situation. And then you add Alzheimer's or dementia or Parkinson's dementia, any of these, it just makes it really hard. But the doctors and apparently the dentists are just so gung-ho. Let's just do it. I, I know people that want to put people through colonoscopies. Mm-hmm. And, and the day before the prep, where you have to drink all this terrible-tasting stuff, you go to the bathroom 20 times in the afternoon, somebody on a walker who's very frail and weak, they're not going to make it to the bathroom safely 20 times, yep. you know? I mean, you're gonna. I mean, maybe you still need to do it, and it's just gonna be a big mess that day. But we have to think about what it is we're actually choosing, 
Um, yep. that's, that's the other big thing that I see is that the doctors don't always explain things so we know what it is we're choosing. You know, they'll say you have a little discomfort. Well, we all know that that really means pain, you know. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> So I always tell people, don't ask the doctor, you know, what's it going to be like to get through whatever we're going to do, or even as simple as a CAT scan or something like that. Talk to the people who actually do the procedure. Talk to the people who actually have been through it. You know, if someone needs to go in an MRI machine and you don't know anything about it, talk to friends that have been in there. Will my loved one be able to lay still, follow directions, hold their breath? Um, be cooperative. Is it going to be scary? Is it going to be cold? Is Can I be in there with them? I mean, we have to protect people from, you know, from things that they just can't do. Or how can we make it so they can participate? Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, I can't believe the time is just flying. We're down to about 10 minutes yet on your show, and I could just talk with you all day. You are just so filled with wonderful information. Um, But I have a couple more questions for you here. In your chapter in the book, When Our Hearts um, Get in the Way, you talk about making um, decisions and and the least worst decision. Can you explain kind of what you mean by that and to try to help, help families with that? Yeah, this is something I read years ago when I first had to to make the decision um, to move my dad to a nursing home when he was falling so much and and I couldn't provide care for him where he was living. Um, I I wish I remember who I read this from. I'd love to give them credit. But it's how to make the least worst decision. And just already saying those words, that doesn't sound very good. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in general, I was really stuck. I literally was like almost frozen because there were like three nursing homes at the time. There weren't weren't a lot of great other places like there are now in our communities. There were three nursing homes, and they were all terrible. And how am I going to pick a place like this for my dad to go? It's like terrible one, terrible two, or terrible three. And this information said sometimes you have to pick the least worst option. So of the three, we know none of them were good. None of them were what you hoped for for your dad. But which one is the least worst one? And I went with that one. And, you know, then I tried to make sure that even though it wasn't a great decision, you know, I tried to visit, I tried to bring cookies to the nurses, I did everything I could to make it a little bit better. And when a new place opened up in town that was a special dementia memory care area, unit i moved in there but Mm -hmm. sometimes in life we have no good options it's this horrible choice or that horrible choice and to do nothing would say my dad's going to stay in danger and i couldn't leave him in danger he was hitting his head and falling and it was terrible so i had to make peace with sometimes i can only choose the least worst so that was what i described yeah. Now, many caregivers are also really frustrated with doctors because when they go in for their appointments, the person with Alzheimer's um, functions better than usual. It's kind of like bringing your car in to get fixed. You know? Right. It never <laughs> makes the, the noise at the car yep. dealer, right. <laughs> um, any suggestions for caregivers in that situation? 
You know, absolutely. Um, the first thing is make a list of all the weird things you're seeing. For some reason, if things are written down, it means that they're you've thought it out. It makes it more real for the doctor. So first thing is start to make a list of all the behaviors and the concerns you're having at home. You know, he's wandering in the middle of the night and crying. He's doing this. He's doing that. Make a list because they don't see what you see. They only see this person who's enjoying an outing and, you know, perks up at the doctor's. Um, So make a list and then make two copies, one for you to hold during the appointment and one for you to hand to the doctor and to leave with the doctor. Um, So that's my first tip. The other thing is use the language of partnering. Right now, doctors are really put upon. The healthcare system is a disaster. You know, everyone is trying to tell doctors how to be. The insurance companies are controlling them. The hospitals are trying to dictate things to them. They're really feeling overwhelmed. Um, You know, and I, I hold doctors accountable. I think they have to do their job, but I also have a lot of empathy for them. Their burnout and their uh, personal exhaustion and emotional exhaustion is off the charts now. I mean, there are some new studies that just came out saying they're in terrible uh, caregiver burnout. Um, so you have to kind of be nice and supportive of them, too, because they're, they're wounded healers. So I would say to them, you know, doctor, I really want to be a good health care partner with you. And there's some information that I have that could help you know what's going on at home. Can I share that with you? So you're not bullying. You're not trying to tell the doctor what to do. You're saying, I want to be in partnership. We're in this together. And that's a mediation tool that I use when working with families. When you say, we're in this together, and I want to partner with you, now everyone still has a voice. So those are my two hints. You know, be helpful to the doctor, but make a list. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. I used to, um, and sometimes you can you can um, email it or fax it ahead of time if you get to know the physician's assistant or nurse, and that I found really really helpful, so that they yeah. can review it before they even walk into the room. Because sometimes there are things that you. Um, don't want to have to address that they can bring up naturally so you're not the bad guy either. Um, right. And that, that's really helpful when you have a doctor who understands that you have to go back and live with them. <laughs> right, <laughs> so. right. You, so you, so that, that's wonderful, yeah. The, you can always tell them things that you don't want to say out loud in front of the person because we don't mm-hmm. want to be disrespectful in front of that person because they still hear us. Um, exactly. The other thing is if you're going to give them an article, say you found something on the Internet or there's something you want them to read, they don't have time to read it while they're sitting there, you know, a big mm-hmm. journal article or something. Send it to them a couple weeks before. Give them a chance to be a good doctor. You know, they they really are trying to do their best most of the time. Wonderful. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in one more question here. Um, being the caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's is overwhelming, needless to say, at times. Can you talk about um, a word you created to describe what caregivers are going through and what care grieving is? Yeah, that's the word I created. I realized that we don't have a really good word to describe the grief and loss and exhaustion of caregiving. And so I created this word called care grieving. 
care grieving is the grief and loss we feel when we care for and about another person. Um, caregiving is a long, long journey. Um, in, in most of the time we talk about, like, if you do grief work and you help people with bereavement issues, you know, we have something called anticipatory grief, which is, you know, your dad's dying and you're really sad those weeks and months before. But this is longer grief. And it can include anger. It can include loneliness. There are caregivers that have been taking care of someone for 15 years. And that's a long time to be emotionally fragile. One of the reasons that I created this word is that if you have a word for something, it validates it. It makes it real. And you can say, I need help. I really am having this kind of suffering. It's not in my imagination. Um, a lot of people who are dealing with dementias and Alzheimer's, the word that they tell me all the time is lonely. They are so lonely. So there's all sorts of different ways that care grieving might show itself. Fear, you know, worry, exhaustion, all those things you're feeling, it's real, and you deserve help and support. That's my message. You deserve to have somebody support you like you're supporting your person. Oh, well, this has just been a fascinating hour with you, Vicki, and I knew that it would be. Like I said, I could just talk to you all day long. Thank I you really too. Encourage, <laughs> encourage people to um, go and get um, Vicki's book, The Caregiver's Path, Compassionate Decision-Making, Making Choices for Those Who Cannot. And the link is on the website, and I'll put it on the blog and and so forth too when I when I do up the article later on today. But Vicky, can you tell people how they can reach you? Absolutely. They can go I have two websites. The first one is thecaregiverspath.com and my blog is at kindethics.com and people can email me at kindethics e t h i c s at gmail.com. Wonderful. Well, any last words of wisdom <clears throat> that you want to pass on? You've given oh, us I, I just want to thank you, Lori. I mean, I really appreciate all that you're doing to to improve everything for the families, for the professionals, for the people with dementias. It's like you you are a really wonderful resource out there, and I'm really happy to be on your show. So thank oh. you. Well, thank you. It's all about collaboration and working together and getting all of our voices heard because Lord knows none of us want to be alone <laughs> going yeah. down this path. And, and it's so much easier, and you can relate. You shared so many stories that, I mean, for me, and I've been doing this 30 years, just went click, 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 click. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, they were just wonderful keys to the door that just made made me look at things even differently so i really appreciate that very very much so thank you, thank you again and then i'm going to go ahead and introduce our our next guest here okay so our our next guest um this afternoon is joe patakni and joe is like more was like most young people um growing up he, uh, you know, he wanted the perfect life like we all do. Um, <clears throat> but for Joe, he ended up with two failed marriages because of what he calls his hopeless drinking until some wonderful people took him by the hand and led him into the light. Joe met his present wife, Lynn, in September of 78, and they were married, and they now have four wonderful children, 
and eight grandchildren. Joe and Lynn um, live in California, and um, they had moved there and fell in love. Um, he did worked on the computers and in that field, and then he retired when he was about 50. And Joe had um, gained a lot of um, notoriety for his forward thinking and his willingness to step out in front and was written up in over 35 computer national magazines. And around 50, he noticed that his brain and his ability to multitask without writing things down was starting to fail him. And so he left the field and he went to do what he called mindless jobs. And then in 2003, um, things started going in the wrong direction. And in 2004, Joe then was declared disabled and not fit to work. The golden years, they're great, much after onset. And he he wants people to know that. Um, He talked with a lot of therapists and doctors, you know, to determine that he had what's called early onset. And in about 2006, 2007, a PET scan then confirmed and revealed that he had frontal temporal lobe dementia as well. And so this has been quite a journey, and Joe now has a blog to help others understand what it's like um, to have this disease, um, what it's like to live with it day in and day out. And um, he also wants people to know that there are no survivors of this disease. And his blog has won some awards, and he was featured in the Wall Street Journal. And Joe himself was actually featured in the HBO documentary, The Alzheimer's Project, which was really one of the first of its kind that that really brought notice to this disease. So I just really want to welcome Joe here today with us because I know he's going to give us an honest view, and he's got some topics that... He would also like our audience to engage in as well. So welcome, Joe. How are you doing today? I am alive. You are alive. Well, that makes two of us, so we should we should have a lively show then. That's good. Well, I'm excited to have you with us, Joe. I always love talking with people who truly are the experts, who are living with this disease. Um, I'd like to start out with um, asking you if you wouldn't mind sharing with people you know, some of the signs that you had, um, you had mentioned, you know, you gave me in your bio about um, <clears throat> not being able to multitask. Were there some other things that came to light for you that you just thought something's not quite right here? Well, conversations didn't work right. I... uh you know, I would do things like everybody else. I'd lose my pen. I'd lose my glasses. I forget where my car keys are. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And forget about appointments or forget about, uh, oh, damn, I had a meeting. Now, and as it is going to the doctors, I, they, I, I, they they told me what I was wrong, and I, I, I came up with a, a, a syndrome, which is distracted, depressed, stress syndrome, because that's what they tell you. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just distracted. You're just depressed. You're just stressed. Take this, do this, do that. Well, 
you know, it's okay. People don't have to worry if you forget where your glasses are. It happens. But when you forget where your glass, what you did with your glasses, what you did with your pen, what you did with your car keys, the appointment that you were supposed to have, you forgot to write this check, and this happens all in the same day, day after day after day. Something wrong. I don't care what they say. Mm-hmm. This is actually the beginning of the disease. What they call early onset now is not early onset. The disease starts at least 10 years before they diagnose it. And they, see, I, what, I, what, what I found was that your, the medical profession is taught to think in this box. On page 87, it says this about this disease, this, 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 and this. If the patient doesn't fit those eight or nine things, they can't have it. It's plain and simple. Yep. Yeah, they they look at things very, very black and white. I know with my right. mom, I mean, she was told it was just hormones. And it, yeah, it, it wasn't just hormones, but they couldn't pin it down. And, again, that was 30 years ago, and I think they've gotten um, better. But, I mean, I think we still have a long long, long ways to go with really well, identifying the disease. From the from the people I talk to, I think they would take exception with what you just said. And mm-hmm. they haven't come very far. Uh, they they think they have. Mhm. But but they haven't. They still don't you know, it's like you go out elephant hunting, so you see this herd of elephants coming at you. Okay, that's what you're after. But damn it, you don't see the Tyrannosaurus rex that's in the middle of the pack, the pack that's going to get you. Mm-hmm. You know, doctors don't, they don't diagnose anymore. They really don't. They don't sit down and take symptom after symptom after symptom after symptom and start to tie them together. They, uh, I mean, I was on so many medications, and this one to treat the side effects of this one and this one, and, you know, on and on and on. They had my family, and I didn't know this, my family was walking behind me to make sure I didn't fall. I didn't, Mm -hmm. something didn't happen to me because I didn't know where the hell I was. And I also didn't know they had called my doctor and got on his case. (laughs) (laughs) And they took me off of those medicines because they thought I had Parkinson's and, uh, well, no, I don't. I had some Parkinsonian, uh, symptoms, 
but those are only from the uh, medications and stuff. And I am still, I'm still here, you know. And what people, I don't, I don't, I don't think the general public understands that when you're given this diagnosis, you are given a death sentence. You're gonna die. Mm-hmm. Plain, period, simple. And that's why the time span goes anywhere from normally two to ten years for people. I think a lot of people just give up and they they quit because they know that it's not going to or or, or they don't want to accept it and this thing uh, really beats the hell out of you. I, uh, I can still talk. And I can still write. But when it comes to walking and standing up and doing things with my hands and power tools, well, that just does not work. I can't okay. do that crap anymore. It, uh, mm-hmm. this, it, it is affecting me. It's taking a different route at the present time, okay. and but it will take it will get to the point to where I won't know who people are. You know, we we that have this disease say that we're the only ones that can turn around and meet a new friend every time. You know, okay. we turn around. And the person that we see is a new friend. Mm-hmm. And we turn back around talk to the other person, they're a new friend. Because we mm-hmm. forget who the hell they are. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to your other guest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was listening about the uh, gal with the breast cancer. Yep. And uh, the one thing I didn't hear her mention is, and maybe she doesn't know this. We hate change. Yep. You going to take her into the hospital? Oh gosh, we're going to put tubes in you, cut your cut your breasts off, and do all of this. That's terrifying. Yep. The change. I, I think that's an excellent point that you make, Joe. That that when we are making those decisions, we have to consider the fear factor because just making, you know, I, I hear from people all the time, just making a choice between coffee or tea can drive can drive you nuts because there's oh. so many choices that you have to make. And, um, and then being changed in your environment or your routine because that's just, you know, knowing what's ahead just brings you calm and can throw you for a loop quickly. So... That's a very, yeah, I, very good point. Change, change, change is very difficult. I now finally, well, I have two scooters. I finally have one that I can go out with my wife, uh, and we can go to the stores and that. Whereas before, when we would go, I was lucky I could handle ten minutes because I just couldn't. I couldn't walk. The walking cause the strain, just being around the people, uh, 
now and the scooter, I have fun because I can whip around things. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, ha- I I have fun in strange ways, you know, <laughs> to other people, but it's fun to me. And I uh, just get really, really pissed. When I when 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 I listen to all, and your guest is probably a wonderful person, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how many caregivers come to my blog, and how many different institutions use my blog, and use my book for teaching on this disease because they don't get it in the medical field. I get tired of hearing them them whine about how how difficult it is for them. You don't have any idea what it's like on this side of the fence. You really don't. You know, yeah, you see us deteriorate, you see us do this, but do you know what it's like to look at somebody that you've been with for 30 years and not know who the hell they are? Yeah, that I don't know. You know, and just stand there and look at him and say, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. I'm your wife. Oh. Okay. You say so. And you walk mm-hmm. away. Or you sit down at the dinner table and you're all talking and you're no longer part of the conversation because you can't follow it can't hear it. Mm-hmm. It's too many voices. I mean, you, you on the other side don't understand that. You don't understand the waves crashing on the shore in the head. Uh, and, you know, there was a gal in the uh, thing, in the uh, documentary I was in, uh, Fanny Davis, she was a black lady, mm-hmm. and I really liked her because she said something and nobody in her family or at the DMV or that understood what she was saying, but I did. They took away her driving privileges, which after watching her drive was a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, she said to him. What you're telling me is I've lost my freedom. And I said, no, Mom, we'll take you here, we'll take you there, we'll take you here, anywhere you want to go. No, I've lost my freedom. They didn't understand that. Yep. When I gave up driving, I gave it up on my own before anybody had to tell me because I realized that, uh uh-oh, things weren't right. And... That's been the loss of my freedom. You know, I'm not free to go here, there, anywhere. And I'm yeah, told, oh, you are. We'll take you. <laughs> Big deal. Yeah, when that's we're used to being independent, that I, I can't even imagine. I don't like getting my let my car go just for an oil change. So I know yeah. I'm when when the time comes for me, I'm not going to take it well because I 
I like having access. So it it really is about that, and not only the the independence because people think that they're helping you out, but it's it's that ability to be spontaneous and that access yeah, on your own. Yeah, you just you just it just it just you know people just don't understand. And what mm-hmm. I another thing that gripes me is when they say it's gonna be okay. Uh wrong. It's not gonna be okay. It gets mm-hmm. worse. Mm-hmm. Some of us become happy go lucky because we don't know where the hell we are, we're in La La Land. And some of us become real belligerent and real nasty. And we can be really something to handle. You know, and I and I give caregivers credit. They 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 put up with a lot from us. And we put up with a lot from them. I was going to say it's definitely a two-way street yes. on that. Uh, so I wanted to ask if you don't mind if I if I kind of switch us here just a hair. Um, sure. But I know one of the things that you really wanted to talk about was the lack of education that you feel that there is in the medical field regarding the disease. And I'd love to hear your insights of what would you like to see changed in the med- medical field as far as education you know, for our doctors and nurses and so forth. Well, you know, I I, I would I would think my, my my psychologist and I have discussed this too, and uh, we've come to the conclusion and, and what medical books he's been able to get, even with his psych his psych uh, training, there is very little, or at least there was very little about people with dementia and Alzheimer's and what to do and how to care for them or even what the disease is. Well, they still don't know what the disease is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as you know, there is no cure. Yep. And they talk about, oh, we have these medicines that will help slow it down. Well, most of the manufacturers even state in there, these these very well may not even help. Uh, And they don't know how long it will slow the progression down, if it even does for the patient. Uh, There have been some promising tests and some new stuff coming out that looks pretty decent. I'm one that follows the studies, and I'll take them apart, and I'll challenge the studies because I want somebody to prove me wrong in what I'm saying, and I've had no takers. And mm-hmm. they've come out with one drug. See, I, I wrote on my blog a long time ago, I believe it was, because I discussed with my, my site that Alzheimer's, is an autoimmune disease, just like AIDS, just like rheumatoid arthritis. And, and 
they just released a study on a drug that's used for uh, immune diseases. I can't remember what the name of the drug is. And they used it on a 1,000 Alzheimer's patients, people that actually had the disease. And they expected to get maybe three to six months slowdown or her, her progress. Mm-hmm. Well, they're going into phase into phase two of the testing because those thousand people haven't declined one iota in three years. Wow. And that's on your blog? You said you've got information on that? Yeah, it's on my blog. And, uh, Can you tell people the name of your blog again, Joel? It's living-with-alzheimer's, but in my great spelling, uh, I spelled Alzheimer's wrong. It's spelled A-L-Z-H-I-E-M-E-R-S dot blogspot dot com slash. And uh, you, you can even just look up Joe Batasny, and you'll find it. Okay. Uh, probably could find it under Mitwitz too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I I I uh, I am. I guess I, along with a couple other people I know, am really tired of it just being the caregiver's voice that's heard. What the hell about us? Mm-hmm. We're not chopped liver. No. Nope. We're people. Well, exactly. And and it's all about you. I mean, it that's should right. be all about you. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's, it's, it's me that's dying, and I'm okay with that. Uh but, you know, I'd like, I'd really like to see them really make some, start to make some progress. Hell, it's been over 100 years since they coined the phrase Alzheimer's. Uh, and not a whole hell of a lot has uh, changed, mm-hmm. really. Really. Uh, in fact, one of, one of my friends that was in, up in Minnesota, Dr. Uh, Joseph Civic, he's a psychiatrist. He was a, uh, his mother died from Alzheimer's, and he was her caregiver when he was 16. And he's written a book about it. And so he gives me the book to read to review, right? Like, mm-hmm. I understand what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, but we're we're friends, and it's I don't I I have to tell you there are times that I'd like to just go into the medical field, grab them all by the throat, and choke them until they realized. What what frustrates you the most with the medical field, Joe? 
that they really don't know what's going on, and mm-hmm. they don't want to listen. They don't want to listen to us. And, and I guess no. that's one of the, the biggest things that I hear from people that have dementia over and over and over again is that um, that the medical professionals don't listen. And no. they don't have all the answers. And there's so much that you guys can teach them. Um, yes. I and, know. And, and mm-hmm. They can't sorry, have all the answers. But they can listen. And to us, and when we tell them what's happening, they can start to see, well, geez, the books are wrong. You know, every, just when you have seen, met one person with Alzheimer's, that's all you've done is met one person with Alzheimer's. Yep, that it is a unique disease. We're all different. You know, it's not like colorectal cancer or uh, cancer of the lungs or brittle bone disease or anything like that. They're all, they run, they're they're all, all the patients that get it have the same problems. We don't. Mm -hmm. Some of us, you can diagnose, and we have later stage symptoms. And then all of a sudden start the earlier stage. I, we, we, the symptoms commingle in us. Wow, that was a big word. That's a really accurate word, too, that I don't think yep. people realize, um, how yep. complicated this disease is. Yeah, because we, you know, there, there are days where I'm totally lost. And then there are some days I'm telling you, I know that I'm just as good as I ever was until I hit the floor. Then I realize that, whoops, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I, I laugh at it. My my wife gets upset and everything, and they did. But, you know, me, I, I just, what the hell? <laughs> You know, so I fell, so I hurt, so what? Uh-huh. You know, that's the way it is. Uh, my body just hurts all the time anyways. And it, 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 it doesn't matter. And, you know, and I, I kind of laugh at it. Because actually I'm laughing at myself. Because you got to kind of... find the humor in this disease or it's going to really drive you bad. Yep. I I see some good points in it. I'm beginning to forget all the assholes that I knew. Mhm. I'm forgetting I'm beginning to forget the people that I hate it. I'm forgetting I'm beginning to forget the people that hurt me. That's a plus. That I was going to say, that's a good thing. You yeah. let go of the pain. Oh. Yeah, that's a good that's thing. That's a plus. Of course, now I can't, I, we could sit and talk about some things that happened in my life, but I can't tell you when they mm-hmm. happened. All I can tell you is that they happened yesterday. 
That's the only time frame I have anymore. I no longer have a time frame for things. Everything is yesterday. If it's not happening right now, it happened yesterday. In fact, getting up this morning happened yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm I'm serious. Mm -hmm. I I, I can get up in the morning at 8 o'clock, go downstairs, take my uh, pharmacy of drugs, uh, sit down on the couch, have something to eat, and just sit there, you know, wide awake and relaxing. And the next thing, thing I know, it's noon. Because Joe is going off somewhere. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I get upset, like with the Alzheimer's Association, and that, and I have ripped them apart on my blog a number of times uh, because I've gone to them and gotten nowhere, mm-hmm. and I'm not the only one. I know a number of people the same thing. But boy, if you're a caregiver, they're there to help you. Mm-hmm. What what kinds well, of things did you not feel supported? By, um, and I know you know every association works a little bit differently too, um, in terms of what they what they have to offer and in specialties. Well, they, they don't. You know, my my thing is then with them. Okay, you use you use this coach down in Tennessee as a spokesperson because she's a well-known coach and all that and and Glenn Campbell and some other people and I said uh, why them why not me mm-hmm. and that me meaning people like me mm-hmm. you know not me in particular and I said well we have to use we have to use celebrities so that we can raise the awareness of the disease. And my question was, if that's the case, why do 60% of all Americans still believe Alzheimer's is curable? Mm -hmm. If you've raised awareness. And the rest of them think that there are drugs to help slow it down, help keep it in check. And then there are the people that know, that don't know anything about it. And then there are the people that know that, uh, hey, no, you're wrong. You know, that the person's going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you've raised all this awareness, why do these figures still keep coming out? You know, yeah. the cancer society. The cancer society uses real people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, of course. Now, I, we we couldn't get on there and say, "Hey, you know, we went to Hospital X, and boy, their diagnosis has given me forty-five years." I said, "I'm probably not." No, we can't do that because they can't do that. We're going to die. 
And I think that's the message that has to be put out. Mm-hmm. And I listed a lot of, I, I ran a thing of uh, 50 celebrities that have uh, died over the years with uh, from Alzheimer's, you know, like, of course, most notably our president, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I can't think. Moses. <laughs> That's all I'm thinking of. Uh, Charlton Heston mm-hmm. and Rita, Rita Hayward and Norman Rockwell and Peter Falk and, uh, oh, guy played Tough guy, I can't I, I can't remember his name. He was married to a redhead, uh, Charles Branson. Okay. And I yeah. ran that, and you know what a com- what the comment I got, you know, and all the pictures of the people. You know what a comment I got huh. was, boy, couldn't have they shown a better, better? Couldn't you have shown a better picture of uh, Charles Branson, like when he was younger and looked better? <laughs> What the, what the, you know, this is what the man looked like when he was dying. This is what the disease does. Well, and, you know, I I think your point about using um, celebrities versus using real people, um, I, you know, I understand, and it's not just the Alzheimer's Association, it's it's a lot of different um, organizations as a whole, you know, they think they need um, this star celebrity thing to attract attention, but if they're really giving good information out and are sincere and authentic, people people will take notice, and, and I really agree with you. I think the public needs to see the real face and needs to hear the real person, um, oh. and because it, it is everybody's family, friends, brother, sister, co-worker, and, and potentially themselves, you know, that are at risk for this disease. I mean, they really don't know what the lines are. So, um, you know, the money that is spent on the big names, I, I personally don't agree with either. I, I don't think it gets that much bang for the buck. I, no. I think hearing the voice, um, and that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons I started the radio show was to get people like you on so we could hear your story and what's it, you know, what is life really like? That's why I started the Dementia Chats webinar series to interview people that, that actually yeah, are living and breathing this disease and know it from the inside out, not just us speculating what it's like. Because um, you guys are so filled with knowledge. Um, that can help us improve, and it, and I really think it can help them with research, too. You know, if they ask some questions, um, needless to Come say, on. there's the whole science end, but but just asking questions of what really are the priorities for you who are living with the disease. You know, what is important? Um, there's got to be there's got to be a better way you know, to work together with all of this. And, you know, I would love to be able to see where the physicians and the nurses and the the medical staff are actually mandated to have um, in-services and training with people that have the disease. (laughs) You know, to really see the true 
the true face of the disease. And I, I don't think that that would be that difficult to orchestrate. Um, again, over in Europe, I know Norm's McNamara, um, you know, was part of that. They they went to a physicians conference, and the, what they did with the conference was, at every round table was a person with dementia. And you know, they had I don't know if it was 20 minutes per person, and then they would rotate the physicians would get up and rotate and talk to another person with dementia and could ask detailed questions and get an honest response from various people. And um, the feedback they got was phenomenal. You know, it's not textbook. It's it's real life. That's right. and, um, And it's sad that we don't take that seriously, the benefits of that, and really incorporate that. I I'm I'm right with you. I think so much could be learned and to to um, break down these barriers of the stigma and to educate people. I mean, you're you're killing two birds with one stone, probably about five. You know, if we would just shut up and listen, you know, <laughs> and ask some questions and really pay attention to the knowledge that you're all so very willing to share. I mean, I, I hear it over and over and over again from those of you diagnosed, why won't they listen to us? Yeah, because we, you know, we're the the ones that are dying from it. We're the ones that are walking the road or stumbling. Uh, We're the ones that forget. Uh, You know, I... I forget my glasses and I panic. Mm-hmm. And I just I just start searching all over for them. And I, 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 it just after after about a half an hour, I'm ready for a bag to start breathing into because I'm starting to hyperventilate because I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going crazy. Uh huh. And I went through this one day. And I'm looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and all over, tearing the house apart for my glasses. I can't find them, but yet I can see everything. But I little did I know, until I walk past the fireplace, and walk past, and there's a mirror above the fireplace. I walk past it, looked at it, went so far, walked back. Guess what was sitting on my eyes? <laughs> right on my my glasses. Yep. And yep. I and then I realized why I could see. Mm-hmm. Because I had my goddamn life. Which I couldn't find. Yep. yep. You know, and it's it and it's stuff like that that happens constantly. And it just seems to happen more. Yeah, and for someone like me I've had that where all of a sudden, I'm looking for my glasses. They're sitting on my head. Or one time, I actually had two pairs sitting on my head because I had pushed <laughs> the other one back so far I didn't know. And then I did yeah. something, and I pushed the other one up, and I was looking, looking. But, you know, for me, it doesn't happen often. Um, you know, and I think it's happened once. But for for you, it happens a lot. And that's the oh, difference that I think people don't appreciate. And And if we step back and just say, 
I mean, I can, I still, I, I can see myself with those two stupid pairs of glasses on my head and laugh. <laughs> but I also can remember the ten minutes prior, I was frustrated looking for my glasses. Right. But it was just, but it was just ten minutes for me, you know. And so, if we can appreciate those moments of frustration, and then learn to multiply it. Um, I think we'll have much better insight as to what it's really like to live with this disease and appreciate, you know, what it is you're going through. I, I've learned so much from talking um, with people with dementia um, just in terms of, you know, background noises and lighting and colors and, and you know, why they get lost in a room and how that feels to be lost in your own house or to look at a door and not know you can walk through it. Right. Um, I mean, there's just so much that we don't know what it feels like. And I'm, you know, what I do, I, I speak and I train, but I, um, my whole stint is to get people to feel the need to make the changes because to me it's all what I call emotional-based. And if we don't, you know, we can we can understand it, we can read it, we can see it, um, but that doesn't motivate us to change, feeling it and and really relating to it on a heartfelt level. That's when we as caregivers will make change, you know. Uh, um, I, I, I even got lost in my backyard once. Mm-hmm. I did. Uh, so I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't find the house. Yep. I, was in the well, I can believe that. That's, that's not uncommon. And people... People think, well, how can it's right there? Well, you can look at it, but the building and the word and the connection to what that building and word is doesn't connect, and then no. we're then you're just lost. And I can't imagine the type of fear and frustration that that has to cause within you. Um, I, I just can't even imagine the turmoil because that would be that would be frightening. Well, that's I. That's one of the reasons I, I I really don't like to go out, and I don't like going past my mailbox. Like when I go out to get the mail, I'm I'm very leery because I'm afraid that I'll keep walking. Mhm. I I'll walk right past it and just keep right on going. And not even know that I'm still going. Yep. And uh, because those things happen in the house, I start I start going somewhere in the house, and I just keep going, and I have no idea where the hell I'm going or mm-hmm. why. And I just it more and more as time is going on, the old brain is more and more. Laying down on the job, mm-hmm. so to speak. But I guess it has a right to. It's almost sixty-eight years old, so you know it it has a right. Uh huh. But I yeah. I know one time I, I I visited a neurologist, another neurologist, and we were talking. And we were talking about it. He says, well, you know, we really don't know what causes it and, and, you know, this, that, and the other thing and that. And he says, you know, we study, you know, people's brains after they die. He says, 
why don't why don't you uh, study live brain tissue mm-hmm. that's dying from it? He says, well, you know, people no, people won't do that. And I looked at him and he said, when do you want to do it, Doc? When do you want to drill the hole in my head and take it out? And he just looked at me and about fell off the chair. He says, well, are you crazy? I said, yeah. <laughs> he says, we can't do that. I said, why? He said, well, it could kill you. I said, I'm dying. What difference does it make? He said, well, it it could leave you really mentally messed up. I said, that's taking place anyways. <laughs> yeah. You know, so what, what's the difference? He said, well, we just can't do that in the medical field. I said, why? I'm willing, you get somebody here willing to let you drill holes in my head and take take tissue, go around where it is dead, and it's starting to die and take live tissue out and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe that'll help you because once it's dead and all rotted and Yeah, you can learn some things, but you can't learn what really was going on. You know, because yeah. I've been willing to do that. You know, and I, I'm still willing to do that. You know, if there was some place out there that would do that, I would go and say, have at it. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I may come out loonier than what I am, but that won't, wouldn't make any difference. But if they learn something, mm-hmm. isn't that the point? To yeah. learn, to get to, to get the knowledge. It's just like in in San Diego County, and I put the facts and figures on my blog. You know that the third leading cause of death among women is Alzheimer's. Mhm. I believe the, it. The third leading cause of death. Of course, cancer is number one, but they group all the different forms of cancer together. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I mean, it's it's number three for women, and I see thousands and thousands marching for breast cancer. Which, by the way, the death rate is decreasing every year uh, for it, which is good. I get and, and I see people with survivor shirts on it, which is wonderful. And yet, then I go and see a march here in San Diego County for uh, a walk for uh, Alzheimer's, and there's maybe two thousand people. Mm-hmm which has led me to believe, and my wife hates this, that boobs are more important than mine. Well, you know, I was going to bring that up um, because I know that that's a passion of of yours in terms of how society frames things and, and what the pitch is in terms of priorities. And Explain to people what you mean by boobs, boobs are more important than brains because it, it really is a very simple concept. It slaps us in the face every day, but we don't frame it in the way that I think you're going to frame it for us, Joe. So go ahead and, 
and tell us well, what you mean by that. What that is, it means that not only by males, and I'm a male, I'm probably guilty at part at times, but, you know, the, all the women's movements and that, we're all, oh, no, we're equal, and it's, you know, our kids and that, and it seems that we would rather save a woman's breast than her mind, that her mind is worthless, but her boobs have value. Yep, pretty I bad. I, I, I don't understand that. Yeah. yeah, from a sexual standpoint, yeah. But, I mean, in, in reality, her brain is far more important. Mm-hmm. And why don't we fight? And, you know, and really, you know, if if, if that much power was brought to bear on Washington, you would see some big changes. And, mm-hmm. and research. Yeah, we got uh NAP with Napa and that uh we we got eighty we got fifty million dollars for uh Alzheimer's research. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, Hey, that's a lot of money. Well what about the two hundred and eighty two million they gave to AIDS? And people with AIDS live longer than we do now. Yep. That it's amazing how people don't realize the numbers, and when you put them up against one another, I mean, it really is a pittance, and especially when you look at the numbers of people affected and the numbers of people expected to be affected by this disease, because my guess is um, probably like yours, that with early diagnosis, these numbers are going to skyrocket. They, we haven't seen yep. anything yet. Oh no, they don't. I, and right now, what is it? Most everybody's out there with the uh, estimate of 5.4 million people, and they've had that estimate for about five years. Mm-hmm. I actually think that in this country, there are closer to 10 to 11 million people with one form of dementia or another. Mm-hmm. Not just Alzheimer's, but Parkinson's and frontal temporal dementia, vascular dementia, uh, you know, and the and the others. Uh, I think there's far more than that. I wrote mm-hmm. on my blog one time. Uh, I took how many people I know, and that I affect. Mm-hmm. because of my disease, and I cut that number down to be conservative, and I multiplied it by the 5.4 million people that have the disease that they say, and I came out that we affected 70, around 70 million people, because mm-hmm. that includes physicians, caregivers, friends, you know, family. And then the Alzheimer's Association a year later comes out with a figure of 65 million that we affect. Mm-hmm. 
boy, are they brilliant. Mm-hmm. You, you, you see why I have <laughs> not a whole lot of confidence in them. I yeah, mean, if, if someone like me can figure that out, <laughs> you know, come on, folks. Yeah, it's a it's a hard one. There's there's so many variables, and we pay so much money for so many things, you know, statistic wise, and you know, and I think we need it um, to a point, but I also think that we need to come together as a society and say, where do we really need to spend our money? Um, and I know that the statistics help justify spending the money, but I but I also think that by educating the public um, as to what is really going on um, with well, this disease. Well, I think disease. people have to understand that this disease is not a mental illness because people look at it like you're mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And if you're mentally ill, we want to put you in a corner. We don't want you around us. Well, I'm not mentally ill. I have a disease in my brain that's ripping it apart. And I yep. still think people think that people with Alzheimer's are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And we're not. No. We have a disease, just like heart disease, just like diabetes, you know, like any, any other disease. We have a disease. Yeah. We're not contagious. You know, if we touch you, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a room with us, you don't have to worry. You're not going to get it. But I've I've often asked people, I said, you want to walk a day in my mind and see what it's like? Just and I would say very few probably pick you up on that one. And <laughs> Nobody has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I know you'll come out screaming. Mm-hmm. You'll go you'll you'll go running like hell because mm-hmm. it's it's pretty scary up there. Yep. And even for a weirdo like me, it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's, oh. I just want people to hear us mm-hmm. and know that we do exist. And you know, you brought up the pro- the uh, HBO project. Uh huh. There were seven of us in the memory, the lost tapes. Uh Uh-huh. There are only two of us left. Mm. And that was filmed in 2008. Yeah, that's not that long ago. No. sad. And the rest, and there were, and out of all the people that were in the others as well, because there was a caregiver section in that, uh, there's only about four of us total left mm-hmm. out of something like about 11 or 12 people, I think. They died. Uh-huh. Some died within two years. 
mm-hmm. some died within four, some died within five. And you take the person who 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 really pushed it, Maria Maria Shriver. Mm-hmm. Her father was diagnosed in two thousand and three with Alzheimer's. Our our Sergeant Shriver. Uh-huh. He died in 2011 in the 10-year span. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, and then you've got people like my mom, who's going on 30 years. You know, it, it's an incredible, incredible well, thing. Well, they're, they're, they, they, I, I just read something, and, and, and I, I read it through the uh, Alzheimer's and Dementia Weekly, Mm-hmm. that they've been doing studies on elderly people that have mm-hmm. that they believe have Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. And they've come up with that a lot of them do not have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. They have a dementia that's called BH. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it stands for. I didn't read the whole article, but they're starting to find that that is and what it is is a natural aging Dementia, mm-hmm. and that, and what all dementias are similar. Yep. We we run through the same thing. We forget stuff. Everything happens, and and the same things wind up happening. The only thing with Alzheimer's is is that Alzheimer's kills, and it kills rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does it doesn't wait. It doesn't waste time. But yet, I have a memorial page. To all those people that I've been told about and given permission to, and I have their names on, that were set free from this disease. They mm-hmm. died, and they were mm-hmm. set free. Yep. You know, and I yeah. don't look at them as dying. I look at them as being set free. Uh-huh. Well, that's a, that's a nice way to frame it. I can't believe our hour is up already, Joel. Yeah. Um, is, is there a way that people can get a hold of you? And yes, if you want to mention your blog again, and they can give me through my blog, Living with Alzheimer's at blog dot blogspot dot com forward slash, or they can reach. Actually, they can email me at Jolyn. That's J O L Y N N one, the numeral one, at cox dot net. And also on my blog, there's an email form that they can use. Uh, now, if they want to send me money, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm willing. I, I, I take uh, double gold eagles, you oh, know. Okay. I, I, not, not really. Okay. <laughs> Well, I need to wrap the show up here. We're going to get caught off. So um, I appreciate you so much being on with us. You were filled with great information. I thought you brought up some wonderful points about um, educating the medical field and people listening to those with Alzheimer's disease and the celebrity versus the everyday Joe that um, is living with the disease. So I I thank you so much. You're doing wonderful, wonderful work. And um, I hope you continue it. And I want to... Oh, go ahead. The pleasure was mine. Well, great. And I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. And if you enjoyed the show, I would encourage you to like us and tweet us and 
share it with your friends. Um, again, this is all about being collaborative and raising awareness. Um, our next show coming up is actually going to be on Thursday on the 30th, and we're going to have Holly Schmidt with All's Best Products, and then Carolyn Claver and um, Betsy are going to be with us, and we're going to be talking about engaging activities with dementia and also some memory cafes and different concepts and a book that they've done, so that'll be a wonderful show. So we will see you soon, and um, have a blessed day. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.